0: Welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissinger. And this is the show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our fantastic expert guest this week is an Australian
1: economist, the CEO of Lateral Economics and the self-styled general pontificator Nicholas Groen, Welcome to Trigonometry.
2: Hi Constantine, hi Francis.
1: It's great to have you here. Uh, listen, for those people who don't know you, uh, just give us a little overview of who you are, what's been your journey through life, how are you, where you are. Okay, there.
2: so let me just say that my brother, well, my father was a, a, quite a prominent economist in Australia, and my brother and I had two both of us had an ambition not to become economists, <laughs> and we both failed. Not yeah. just me, yeah. uh, but it's an important part of my story because I knew I got an intuition about economics long before I studied economics and I found I went and worked for uh, our industry minister, a guy called Senator John Button in the 1980s, worked on car industry policy and I found to my dismay that economics was being used not as a method of thinking but as a badge of tribal identity. If you were were trained as an economist you knew what you thought before you checked out the subject and I've realised now that the company that I started many years later, which I called Lateral Economics, I actually have given a paper called Lateral Economics, a brand or a method, and I think it's a method. Of it. And it's, it's the way I go about things, which is to stay away from pre-cooked conclusions, whether they're in my discipline, in any other discipline, or in politics or anywhere else. And so that leads me to kind of figure stuff out for myself and if that sounds like a cliche, it is, but it takes a long time to unlearn all the all the things that you're being taught uh, and to kind of go through the process of actively deprogramming yourself against all these messages that are coming in so that's that's my pitch that's my that's my um uh, value prop uh as a as a as a contributor to public debate on economics and and more widely.
1: That's fantastic and that's why we wanted to have you on the show and we'll talk about economics and the academia side of things as well a little bit later. But um, just uh, tell us a little bit of what's happening in Australia. One of the things we talk on this show a lot about is the culture wars and all this kind of stuff. Where are you guys with that? Well
2: I think we were in a very good place in the 80s and 90s where we led the world in economic policy and we had a government, uh, in fact there was a bipartisan consensus on things like race gender and so on and that broke down as you could you if you were looking to blame the labor party you would blame paul keating because he was a, who was the prime minister from 90 uh, from 1991 to 1996 and he was very divisive but he was still part of the bipartisan consensus which didn 't go after culture wars, but then on the on the change of batten to John Howard as prime minister it 's kind of he famously was very insightful in revving up what seems to have been latent in the Australian psyche, which is that if if white Rhodesian farmers were boat people floating off our coast i 'm sure we would have uh, wanted to save them, but if they 're brown people from the Middle East or Asia, not so much, and so we 've slid into a, a, a pretty unpleasant uh, state of affairs where um uh you know where where um well w- we um uh, are keeping keeping people out now of course we have to keep people out there are 60 million refugees who not all of which could come to australia but it's appropriate that we don't just say any old any old person can come in here, but the lengths that we've gone to in dehumanising people is 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 a national is a national shame, and most people feel it. Um, but there we are; it wins elections, and neither of the major parties. A bit like Brexit, where the elites sort of uh, kind of appreciate it might not be the greatest policy they think that the people will crucify them if they move away from that policy. So we've got something similar going on in Australia.
0: And do you think that that policy has been brought about because of racism? Or do you think it's brought about through other things as well? Like we had one particular guest on who, uh, who, you know, who was saying, you know, it's because they want to keep... The reason we voted for Brexit is because we want to keep British culture intact. Mm. Do you think that is what is going on in Australia, or do you think it's more overt uh, simply that the distrust of another Before culture? you
1: answer that, sorry, Francis, that interview will come out after this one, so Francis has given you a tasty preview of our interview with Eric Kaufman, who will be out in a
2: couple of weeks.
0: That's what I like about you. You're just an advertising man. That's right. <laughs> so, anyway, Nicholas, go ahead.
2: I, I'm a believer in presumptive generosity. When you're interpreting people, it makes sense to try and interpret... the. Uh, you're trying to make as much sense of what they're saying and doing and the way they're acting as possible. And it's a perfectly legitimate th- it's a perfectly legitimate thing to say that we've built a great society here, certainly better than many societies around the world and we want to protect that. So so I don't have any I people who feel um anxious that too many migrants are coming in from very different cultures um I don't feel that way, but I don't demonise that. Uh, I don't demonise that at all. And then there are some racists. Then there are some very small-minded, bigoted racists, but I don't. Th- that's not the way I look at the debate in Australia um, or anywhere else, really.
1: Do so you think it's cultural, essentially?
2: It's cultural and it's perfectly legitimate to say we, say, as the Japanese say, we are proud of our culture and it's not compatible with too many people coming in here because then it'll be a different culture. I think people underestimate that, they underestimate the extent to which a culture can remain, can protect the best parts of it uh, and then become more exciting. Um, We have a commentator in Australia called Philip Adams who I I think his line is that we invited a lot of uh, European migrants into Australia. and. Found that it was so much fun. We wanted more. So, so that's my attitude to immigration. But, but you know, I'm not an open. I'm not. I, I'm not an open door policy person either. Um, and I'm in favour of a of a vigorous and expansive immigration program for Australia. And I respect people who want to. I don't. I don't hold up the the cross and say you're a racist if people feel differently.
1: So your concern is how those refugees are treated, essentially. On.
2: Uh, Well, I don't want to... Uh, One of my concerns is self-righteousness. So it's very important for me not to be self-righteous about this because I'm a privileged person who's going to say to a desperate person, sorry, you're not coming. And whether I draw that line at 200,000, 300,000, 400,000, a million a year, and at the moment it's uh, something like 200-odd thousand a year... um, I'm going to be just as much of a bastard as anyone else. (laughs) So let's get off our high horses. Let's try and make ourselves as comfortable as we can be with a policy, uh, whatever policy we come up with, and we will be making heartless and cruel decisions. Nevertheless, let's make them as... uh, Let's minimise that and let's feel as good as we can about it and locking up little kids on... Uh, on islands off 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 Australia without any judicial review that 's there 's nothing good about that doesn't make people feel good i mean numerous people have died who needed medical attention and didn 't get it um, I raised ten thousand dollars for refugees at a party about a month ago and a great writer of ours, Christos Salkis, read the names of those people. So I feel very strongly about this. I don't feel self righteous about it. And there's a big difference. My father was a refugee, so that's another reason I feel strongly about it.
0: So do you think the Australian government, oh, I think you just intimated, is unnecessarily cruel in their treatment of refugees? Totally.
2: Well, what would you do if you have my view or anybody else's view, and you know that there's a kid on Manus Island who's self harming, who has pneumonia, who needs medical attention and you say, oh, well, they might be, they might be uh, pulling our leg, they might be pulling a stunt. They probably are pulling a stunt, OK? But w- they need medical attention uh, and we should be giving them medical attention and we're not.
0: Whenever I watch an co- Australian comedian at a comedy club, the first joke they make is about Australia being a racist society yeah. and it always gets a big laugh and everybody claps and cheers. Is that true?
2: Or, is, uh, or would you well, say Well, we're that- all racist, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, of course we're all racist. I mean, you know these tests on basketball umpires. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I have a friend I just had... I just had a cup of tea with a friend who... Uh, he's a Dutchman and he organised... or He was instrumental in organising an experiment on buses where people got onto a bus and said to the bus driver... I'm really sorry, I don't have any money, I just need to get to the next stop, would you mind me riding to the next stop? Uh, now, these numbers are made up, but they're indicative, so just assume they're right for the, for the purposes. The 71 or 2% of people had yes said to them. Oh, Sorry, about 65%. But if you were white, it was much higher. If you were black, it was lower. And those bus drivers, I don't think they were black-hating racists, but so so let's let's relax about these things. Let's get let's not get too much on our high horses. All
1: right. Well, uh, it's an interesting start to our interview. But let, let's move on to, to economics. And uh, and you mentioned one of the things I, I like you about you, among many things I like about you,
2: is uh, something. That... We'll get to the bits of the things you don't like <laughs> when the camera stop rolling. the, of the, <laughs> the rest That's of the when interview.
1: Constantine gets on the vodka. Yeah, <laughs> it goes dark. Um, But is that you, I never know, I've spoken, we've spoken many times, I never know where you're going to come out on any particular issue because uh, you're someone who is not ideological and you talked at the very beginning about how you abhor most ideology and it it drives people into...
2: Well I like it as a starting point not as a concluding point and I know that it can hijack your emotions. And it gets confirmation bias going too early in the process, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
1: So tell us more about that. What is the impact of having these ideologies that you see out there in, in the world, in, in economics and politics? Yeah, How so does that drive so, so
2: I think this happens everywhere. And, and what happens, uh, this may sound like a joke, but, um, well, you're comedians, so it'll, it'll be OK, won't it? But yeah. it isn't a joke. <laughs> um, I don't know, you might you might relate to this precise story, and if you can't, you can relate to something similar. When you're an adolescent boy at high school, where you wear your belt around your hips is a big deal. If you wear it too high, you're effeminate, okay? It's completely ridiculous. And in the 18th century, it was different, and next century, it'll be different again. But. Something's going on there, which has got a lot of psychological power, because it's happening all around the world. And so if you're an economist and, there's this, and this idea seeps, seeps into economic policy, which is, are you a free market guy or are you a big government guy, then... You're going to reach for... You're going to be constantly aware of that. You're going to be aware in meetings about how you're going down. There are going to be cliques and cabals unacknowledged and acknowledged. And the whole damn thing is actually run by where you're wearing your belt. It's all mad. It's all completely unhinged from the merits of the situation. So I don't say that I... um, abhor ideology, I think of ideology as both impossible to avoid and a good starting point because it orients the world. But then, I'm, I, do, I I don't pick sides to be contrary or anything like that, um, but I do spend a lot of my time trying to find ways to express an idea which don't trigger, to use a word that would work on this program that don't trigger a response from the other side which says, oh, he's just a lefty, or he's just right-wing. I will actually try and work out a way, a subversive way, to make a point which um, tries to get under those early warning systems and trick people into thinking for themselves, or at least not having all these incredibly strong mechanisms um, doing the thinking for them, if that makes sense. And I've found that it's just been wonderful because I'm able to wander around and I can pick low-hanging fruit. I can say, hang on, well, why don't we... All right, so you're a free market person, you're an intervention person. Forget all that. What's the problem here? Um, What if we did that? And people go, you sound like you're a free market person. I say, no, 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 forget that. (laughs) What if we did that? Would that work better than this? oh, you're a bit of an interventionist, aren't you? <laughs> no, no, let's think about that. And, and through that process, I've, I think, come up with lots of really quite actionable, simple, low-cost, very high-benefit ideas. Um, so there you go.
1: Do you want to give us an example or two?
2: I'll give you an example or two. So think about the labour market. Think about going and getting a job. Now I don't know what the sort of language in your country is but one of the you know labor market deregulation is all about flexibility people being able to move from one job to another you've got people in you've got people in trenches in which flexibility means an employee an employer's right to hire and fire and and what do you call it? No listing, or you know, um, blacklisting? No, no. I'm talking about always being available for a job and not being uh, so sort like of free hours. Zero hours contract. Or, yeah, sorry, yeah, zero, zero hour hours contract. contract. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So, so that's on one side, and then you've got the union. And in Australia, you've also got quite strong labour market regulation, and you would have something like that. Now, ask yourself this question: When I go to a job, what do I know? about whether it's a good workplace or not? The answer is you don't. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that you've got all these free market types running around saying we should have more flexibility, uh, and yet the absolute essence of a market working well, and you don't have to have read economic theory to do this, you just have to have existed in markets, the essence of a market working well is that everybody's got good information so they can go where they want to go, what they value. But is anyone paying any attention to that? Well, not that I've noticed. So let's take this. Let, let's let me ask you another rhetorical question. In fact, we've got lots of data on this because any company that's got more than twenty, thirty employees keeps employee engagement data. They're constantly sending them surveys. And I like my boss. I think my boss is a waste of time. <laughs> I I think I'm well trained. Am I not? And it's funny in those things. that The one question which everybody says. Um, they're below average on is they're not paid as much as they should be. But all the <laughs> others are sort of up about 70%, 80%. This one's down about 46%. So the data's there. And lots of women, but of course it's also true of men, might want to prioritise a flexible workplace over um, one with strong career structures or lots of money or whatever. Now, of course, if you go and if you go and you ask the person you're going to work for is, is this family friendly, well, then if they've decided they want to market family friendliness, um, they will say, yes, here's our family friendliness policy, but we all know that that's a policy and then there's the fact and yeah. that there may be a difference. And yet we've got all this data because they'll be polling their own employees about how they're finding this. So why don't we release the data? Well, that leads... That leads to the next. Let me ask you, why why, why don't firms release the data? Because they don't want to look bad. They don't want to show that, you know... Good. You fell for, That's exactly what I wanted you to say. So why don't the good firms release the data?
0: I enjoy these bits of the interviews the most <laughs> Francis gets asked questions he can't answer. Right. So <laughs> why don't the good firms release the data? Is it because even within that data there will be things that they want to hide? Possibly. I think there's a better answer. <laughs> This
2: reminds no me. Surprise. when I was in school. Constantine's got the answer. Yeah, but I'm not
1: telling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not telling you. But you're the interviewer. Yeah. <laughs> you're the interviewee. And why would the good companies not want to release the data?
2: Well, I don't know. Tell so us. So I'm a good company. So let's right. say, I'm, well, let's let's not say I'm a good company. Let's say I'm KPMG and I release some good data, and you're uh, PwC. Yeah. And the data looks good. What are you going to do as PwC?
1: Duke the stats. you'll have
2: di- yeah no well yes but <laughs> you'll have different data because you'll be using a completely different system right. to yeah, measure it. Yeah. so you'll just go through it and you'll get your bullshit artists also called you know comms people to <laughs> go through it and pick bits out of it that look good yeah and so it's a zero so it, it's not going anywhere Yes. Yeah. because bullshit's coming out not information yeah, yeah. so the market failure here is that there is no standard to report to. Yeah. So Theresa May could say, or Jeremy Corbyn, uh, could say, who wants to take the Prime Minister's challenge to help define a standard or a partial standard Mm -hmm. that we will all collect our data... The first 10 questions will all be the same of Mm -hmm. anyone who agrees to follow the standard, and it'll be auditable, And then the best firms can release that data, and it's auditable. And then the ones immediately under them are starting to look like all the rest of the firms, so they'll release their data. Even though it makes them look worse than those people, it makes them look better than all the people down there. Mm. And we'll go down. Now we won't get all the way to the bottom. But that costs virtually nothing, is largely risk-free, and is not ideological. It's problem-solving.
1: Ah, so you are an interventionist, Nicholas. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> and, and,
2: and notice that there was no compulsion. Yeah. So I think if all that worked out, mm. I, might, I might say, oh, and by the way, after we've proven up this system, in five years' time, this is compulsory for everyone. Mm. But, well, you know, I might be wrong. We, we'll just have to see. Yeah. But, but, but that's, that's an example of what we could be talking about. But, no, we're not, because it doesn't rev us up. Because it doesn't... We can't feel self-righteousness either on behalf of the employee or the employer. So it's not good radio, not good TV, not good media. Let's go back to... Let's go back to the trench.
1: See, as a layperson, one of the things that I think most lay people will think about when they think about objectivity and balance and genuine facts and the the pursuit of truth Mm. is academia Uh and science and even social science to some extent. Right. Well, I know you were going to say that. That's the one area I can predict your response on. So, how does. But
2: maybe not exactly for why I think that. Sure. Um, Because I'm, I mean. There, there is a fair bit of political bias or ideological bias in the social sciences but there's something much worse than that which is that um over the last 20 or 30 years we've gone from sort of leaving academics alone which gave us an inefficient but fairly effective system to treating academics like lab rats in a skinner box in a and they have to produce articles in learned journals by a certain magnitude uh, of a certain number or they get sacked. And that has them all running round and round and round on this treadmill, producing articles. Um, And the articles aren't worth anything. The articles are not—they're articles which build disciplines but don't build useful knowledge. and it's a catastrophic state of affairs there's also and so it's it's also the case that is certainly in the social sciences uh... there's quite a bit of there's quite a bit of ideological bias that's true and generally i just think there's too much focus on the polls on these slogans are you free market or are you intervention
1: Yeah. Well, actually i think jonathan Haidt talks about this in in his work is that in the 60s, it was a ratio of liber- conservatives to liberals in academia. Yep. It was like one to two. Mm. And now it's one to ten on average. Yep. And in some departments, it's like one to 300. Yep. Right. So politically, there's a very strong uh, bias as well.
2: Yeah, right? absolutely. No, it's true. It's true. In economics, it's much less true. Yep. Um, so economics is much more uh, balanced, I would think. In fact, I don't know. Certainly, I don't know about left and right, which would sort of raises questions of distribution, but in terms of preferences for free market and intervention, economics is, a sort, of, is sort of biased towards free markets. So the, way the, the way the discipline is constructed, it's constructed on the presumption that uh, consumers will be better at getting what they want than anyone on their behalf, which, of course, makes perfect sense unless you're dealing with a monopoly, unless you're dealing with trickery, unless you're dealing with bad behaviour of any number of different kinds. Uh, So it's actually more complicated than that. But the whole way economics is built is to be built on um, some kind of presumption that, you know, do we really want to mess with this relationship between consumer and producer? And the answer is no. In lots of cases, we can realise that markets will work well. And then there are all the interesting cases where there is something wrong with markets, but there's also something wrong with governments. And can we evolve institutions that do better than what we're doing now. And I've just given you an example of that. Mm. We don't spend much time talking about that.
1: And is that the impact of this kind of way of thinking, that real-world problems don't get solved instead yeah. of we have these battles? That's right.
2: So I couldn't... The, 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 the idea that I've pre- presented to you, mm. I couldn't put that in a... I couldn't publish that in an economic journal without all kinds of basically idiotic modelling. Um, Because they'd go, oh, yeah, well, that's an idea, but you need to, it needs to be more than an idea. Um, uh, So, what happens is that the discipline ends up looking at things where there's lots of data. So, that's the old business of looking for your keys under the light, even though you lost your keys down the road. (laughs) Um, uh, Where there's lots of data, where it's possible to build. Sort of toy economic models of of people interacting. Now, in this area, in the area that I the the example that I gave you, um, the reasons why people don't have good information about workplaces are it's sort of subtle and it's not very easily susceptible to simple modelling. And most simple modelling just assumes that people know what they need to know and that they have the cognitive power. To do whatever calculations are necessary, and uh, I think you would say, I would hope you would say, commonsensically, that's not the case there. Mm-hmm. So we should be able to just jump off from that piece of common sense. If someone wants to come along and challenge it, that's fine. We should be able to jump off from that common sense and then start looking at this as a possibility, and and oodles of other, oodles of other ideas.
0: So we were talking a little bit about how um, we've seen in academia a, a gradual shift towards the left, In not particularly in economics, but in some departments. Do you think that's a problem, that c- uh, certain institutions are way over to the left?
2: Yes. Or- <laughs> and why? Well, because... The, ..because these things should be starting points, not answers. And because... Yeah, we've got a whole lot of people running around, lecturing other people about essentially nothing, about a bunch of talking points, about a bunch of slogans. Disastrous.
0: So, what do you mean by a bunch of slogans?
2: Um, Well, well, we've got the recent example of fake papers being published. If you learn the techniques, and it's hard work to do it, You can get fake papers papers published. You can get fake papers published in a surprisingly large number of areas. Now, I happen to have the view that um, there are whole fake sub-disciplines within economics. So, real business cycles is based on the idea that the Great Depression was a spontaneous holiday taken by tens of millions of workers. Essentially, (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's it is funny, isn't it? But people have won the Nobel Prize for that work. Okay, it's not. No-one's exposed it as a fake because the mathematics is all correct. Mm. But the basic assumptions are just risible. You were laughing at them. Yeah. Um, this happens in economics <laughs> all the time. And sometimes you should make silly assumptions because they kind of get you to somewhere which is fertile. But that's really not what's happened in economics. What happens in economics is that it's the, what the, this analogy I made with where you wear your belt. You, there are disciplinary protocols... Um, One of them, I won't, I don't think it's worthwhile boring your listeners with it too much, but um, one one of these protocols is that you shouldn't build a model of the macro economy the way the whole economy is working without micro-founding it. In other words, without building an elaborate structure which goes all the way from individual agents and deduces from that macro responses. Now, the problem with that is that We all know that we are members of a herd. We all know that we are ignorant when we make an investment or when we buy a fashion item, and we all know that there is a degree of emergent herd behaviour. That's a fucking micro-foundation, okay? but it's not in mathematics. That sort of micro-foundation was already there in Keynes, in John Maynard Keynes, but it became unfashionable. Keynes was wearing his belt too far up his his waist and he looked like a dill according to current fashions. Mm -hmm. And so we developed this proposition that a model is worse for not having micro foundations and a particular kind of micro foundation. Off with the fairies. But there you are. Those are fake papers and people got Nobel Prizes for Mm -hmm. it. So things are a bit more serious than a few fake papers in social sci- in, in, in some of the more left-wing social science disciplines.
0: And you say it's a bit more serious. How, how serious are we talking about here? Well,
2: well it's, it's it's 8.1 on the Nicholas Gruen series. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd put it possibly 8.2. It's possibly uh, an 8.2. Uh, I don't know where it is on your scale, but I'd recommend about 8.1. That's yep. where I'm thinking. It's a very serious situation. And, and, and everyone... Well... <laughs> I can't count the number of times, the number of conversations I've had with young academics who say, yeah, yeah, I know all that, and I'll play with the game for a while and I'll become more influential and I'll change it. I respect that. I mean, that's a interesting, worthwhile uh, mission to give yourself. But we've heard that from politicians too. and 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 I see this as there's something very unsatisfying about it now you could say there's something unsatisfying about what i've done which is to go and try and look at problems on their merits which is a snake oil salesman's way of saying i don't know what i mean i try and be as rigorous as i can i talk to people who know the field better and so on and i and and when people ask me what does lateral economics uh, is it does it, is it um, Does it focus on energy or transport or macro or labor market? I say yes, it does, um, but we try to look at things on their merits, and i 'm sorry that sounds like you know that doesn 't say very much, but i haven 't given you an example of the sort of thing that we try and find, which is just something that people haven 't been talking about or thinking about, which offers actionable high-impact kind of results.
1: Well, that's what you've been talking about, is not attaching yourself to a particular way of thinking, but rather looking at the reality and that's going, right. what can we do that's with right. this?
2: And, and, and a discipline is a set of tools. It's a set of, it's a set of re- repertoires, a set of instincts, all of which are, could, can be useful and all of which can be questioned mm-hmm. and which need to be assembled carefully for any... Particular question, and right. it will be assembled differently. Yeah. So, if I'm talking about a school system as opposed to a hospital system, there will be elements of similarity, and there will always be elements of difference. And we should try to follow the follow the merits of the situation uh, and use these these ideas that that are, that are in our discipline and in other disciplines to try and come up with. Good ways of reacting.
1: Well, you alluded to it. Like, there was a, a, a story uh, by the time this goes out, will be a couple of weeks ago, where, with uh, Peter Bogosian and Helen Pluckrose and this other guy, who they t- they took a section of Mein camp. Yeah, <laughs> they threw some That's feminist feminist buzzwords into it. Yeah, and they got peer reviewed and published in the journal. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, uh, th- that that is incredible. Well, all dogs and rape culture yeah, is another right. one. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's it's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> Um, what can you say? Um, it's, it's, it's. We should all reflect on it because if it's that prominent, I mean, we can say, ha ha. I mean, quite a few of these kinds of papers, uh, economists are very. Uh, there are quite a lot of economists who are very superior about that, as if you know that wouldn't happen in economics. No. It's true that doesn't happen in no. economics, but but mathematically defended nonsense happens in mathematics. It happens in economics all the time. No. It it shows how ignorant we are and how respectful of our own and everybody else's ignorance we ought to be. Well, I mean, I take a bit of an interest in business people because um, they've, uh, well, some of them might have just got lucky, but it's remarkable how often, I mean, this is true, um, Elon Musk says this and Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett say this, which is, We make most of our money mostly by trying not to be stupid, not by trying to be very clever. And that's not what academics do. Uh, Academics don't win any prizes for not being stupid. They win prizes for showing how incredibly clever they are, even if it's in the service of something which is ultimately stupid. So it's an interesting little paradox, and I wouldn't want to get too self-righteous about any of it.
0: I mean, I did a drama degree, so <laughs> so I know what that's about. Yeah, uh, you know a lot about bullshit. Yeah. Um,
1: well, let's move on to politics. You, you had some. I've always enjoyed uh, listening to you talk about the political side of things, the kilconomics, and uh, yeah. you know, um, you 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 you've often said that we've done to politics what McDonald's has done to nutrition. Yeah. What do you mean by that?
2: So I think our culture is besieged by fast foodism, if you like. So the, the, the paradigm example is we uh, is fast food, and we evolved on the African savannah, uh, and, and we evolved certain appetites and tastes and culture, cultural practices, and they meant that we liked food that was sweet, that was rich, that was salty, that didn't disgust us. And if you do that on the African savannah, it keeps you away from poison, you know, meat that's gone bad and, and it, it, it works well for you. And it also works well for you as human beings uh, are, um, uh, are evolving and getting richer. They then start to create food for themselves that, that is more expensive because it's richer and so on, and then at some point, as people start to optimise to sell the food, this these instincts betray us, and... Don't have to tell me about that, Nicholas. <laughs> they become poison. they become yeah. toxified. And I would argue that over our whole culture, um, that we are... And, and this is, in a sense, what I was saying about academia, that we had optimised certain... Things about it to the point of toxicity. We've gone from an inefficient but effective system to an efficient but ineffective system. And in, I mean, so, so if you take the fast food example, you uh, if you think that McDonald's is to uh, McDonald's is to food, what porn is to sex, mm-hmm. uh, and what modern politics is to what we imagine politics should be. So, modern politics has been optimised to within an inch of its life people who are selling a political message. And I was talking to somebody yesterday about Brexit, and uh, she was saying, well, we know what emotional message Theresa May will go with if she gets a deal from Europe. What's our emotional message? And I said to her, yes, well, Adolf Hitler said, of course, I reserve reason for the few and emotion for the many. And our politics is so optimised around emotion, around re, uh, entitlement, around resentment. This country's famous for having a prime minister who told people they'd never had it so good. I think that was in the late 50s. Mm. That didn't go so well for him. <laughs> Truth-telling isn't a great idea. In politics. <laughs> um, so, so, But that was the late 50s or 60s. Um, and now it's got so much more like that, so much more trivialised, so much more sen- uh, s- uh, sensationalised. Uh, and again, people blame the internet, and of course the internet's a very important part of this story, but it's also very important to realise, at least for me, I was, on, I was very upset and concerned about uh, democracy before the internet, and the best stat I can give you on that is that on American TV, the length of a sound bite went from 48 seconds to 8 seconds from 1968 to 1988. And we're not going to survive as a democracy with sound bites of eight seconds. Um, We have to be able to... uh, We we have to recover reason in our politics. Um, And I wouldn't even really be going on about this except that I think that we can do it, except that I think I have an idea which can powerfully detox the situation that we're in. Otherwise, I'd just be kind of grizzling on, and I'd rather focus on things that I think I have some. I have I, where I think I can make some kind of contribution.
1: Well, that's what we love to do here at Trigonometry, yep. solve the world's problems exactly. in one conversation. Well, so exactly. why, don't, why don't you solve it for us?
2: So I believe. So I think the, the basic idea is to understand that there are, in fact, two ways of representing the people. There is an old way of. Rep- so you can have direct democracy. We actually. Now, now, in some sense, that they had direct democracy in Athens in, uh, two and a half thousand years ago, but we might get back to that. Um, but we, since the internet, we actually have the technology to go back to direct democracy. Can you imagine getting home from work, going onto your internet, and saying, "Oh, okay, so the, um, we're going to change the weight that a nurse can lift in a hospital from five kilo- kilogrammes to three and a half kilograms." Tick. I don't know. So. So that's one way. And and people are enamoured of the idea that direct democracy might be a good thing because that plays to our vanity because politics is all about everyone telling the people the people are good and the politicians are just... uh, ..the politicians are just tricking them. Well, who votes for the politicians? (laughs) Uh, As Bernard says when uh, Prime Minister Hacker says to him, Bernard, it seems that the civil service exists simply to prevent politicians implementing the sacred promises they made to the people, well somebody has to. (laughs) (laughs) So we're all part of this system. Um, So I don't think direct democracy is the answer, I think direct democracy would quite possibly make things worse. Oh definitely. So we've gone with a representative system, but the representative system that we've gone for makes us feel good and makes us feel that they're doing what we want because they compete for our votes that's mm. representation by election there is another way to represent the people you might not since you haven't read my stuff I'm going to ask you again what's the other way to take subsets of this the community is so good. this is join this subsets of the community who will be representative <laughs> of the community and we do it right now we did it in ancient Athens and we do it right now Look in Britain. the discomfort yeah. in right. this pace. really
0: reminds me of. But I used to be a teacher so this is what I did to kids when they didn't do their homework yeah, exactly this okay. is well, the, I'm making
2: it a feature not a bug one, one of you have done your homework you haven't Nicholas, that's good Nicholas, That's good. there's nothing wrong with it. we've got to have you back <laughs> <laughs> you, you, if, by the way you're wearing your belt a little hard
0: yeah, <laughs> <unhugged>. <laughs> I'm getting absolutely owned this here this
1: is by far in the way, the best episode of trigonometry we will ever release.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know the question. <laughs> right, okay, so, the matter, uh,
2: representing right. the people. What, How what's... can we represent the people? How can we find another way of just pick of, of getting 300, 500 people to represent all everyone in Britain?
1: By the way, what Francis thinks about this?
0: Why don't you have a think and see if you come up with the right?
1: <laughs> that's right. Well, we're at
0: it. So, what is another way? So,
2: they I've... did it in Athens. They're doing it in Britain now.
0: They're doing it in courts. So, the jury system... The jury
2: system, that's it. So you just get ordinary people and you say, ''What do you think?'' And that changes everything. It changes the idea that this group is an elite. It only becomes an elite as it learns. So, a jury is a cognitive elite for the case at hand, because they've been sitting there for the last twelve days and they've been learning. But they represent the people. And if twelve people good and true or whatever it's supposed to be, say that a guy's guilty, you don't feel the need to you don't we don't have lots of talk back radio about how we were ripped off by those rotten jurors. We go, well if it was good enough for them, they might be wrong, but it's good enough for me, because that's the best we can do. Yeah. We don't do that right with the politicians because we have hooked up the idea of representation to merit. Merit has been toxified by all the dark arts of of politicking. Elections force politicians to fight each other because they can't become a politician without beating another politician. So they're not going to say, well, hang on, we've all got to fix this problem. They're going to say, well, if I say that, I'll say that they'll say I'm tough on crime and that will get me more votes because everybody's feeling really bad about some horrible murder. Uh, so th- so that toxifies our politics. In a jury, it's all completely different. In a jury, people listen to each other. They're kind of keen to compromise. Um, they. So, so let me take you through the psychology of someone being uh, invited onto a political jury, so now I'm talking about what's called citizen juries. Why don't
1: you outline what it would look like first, Nick? So you're talking essentially about a third chamber.
2: So, so that's one way of doing it. At the, uh, what's been done so far is, uh, so, so let me give you an example of Oregon. In Oregon, the state of Oregon in in the United States, they have citizens-initiated referendums, and in 2011, I think it was, or perhaps a year or so later, they had a referendum on. Mandatory sentencing. Now, who's not in favour of mandatory sentencing? If if you are convicted of a felony sex offence, I'm sorry to pick on you again. <laughs> if you are, but it's just where you're wearing the belt. If you're convicted of a felony sex offence on four occasions, do you think there should be mandatory sentencing? Yeah. Good. If you are convicted, and it was 25 years in jail. If you are convicted of drunk driving on three occasions, do you think there should be mandatory sentencing? Yeah. You, I didn't even have... even. It's interesting you said yes, I didn't even tell you what the sentence was. Yeah. But the sentence is three months in jail. Now, I answered yes to both those things. Yeah. 70% of, Oregon, of people from Oregon uh, believed that was a good idea and a citizen's jury was held. 24 people meet for one day per weekend for four weeks, four days. And after that process, and we have to assume the best guess is that 70% of them were for and uh, 30% were against, Mm. or some undecided. And after that process, the 24 people voted 21 against and 3 for. Wow. So obviously, now you can easily imagine, I don't know what the difference was, but I presume you could take someone through a possible, quote, felony sex offence, which actually wasn't such a big deal that you would put some away, someone away for 25 years. I don't know what that was. Uh, but I do know, and I have a lot of faith in ordinary people. Uh, if I hear that, I think, well, that was probably a dodgy bill. Uh, so, so that's the idea of a citizen jury. The psychology is different. It's more democratic than, than our electors and so on. Now, how would you... Uh, n- now, I guess, yeah, so, so I want to kind of lead a movement of demanding a citizens' chamber. Now, a citizens' chamber would be several hundred people chosen at random, and the one thing that it would do is it would take our eye just ever so slightly off the opinion of the people and give us another view of the considered opinion of the people, which, in the case of mandatory sentencing, is the difference between you know, 15 or 16 out of 24, and 3 out Mm. of 24. Mm. A huge difference. And if that had been the case in Australia, I think an overwhelming majority of a citizen's... ..of normal people, when they learnt that we were abolishing carbon pricing, which would now be contributing to our budget over $10 billion a year and keeping carbon emissions low and maintaining government services or lowering taxes elsewhere, that was so much, so much better policy than the policy we implemented. Uh, that it wouldn't have even happened if we'd have had such a chamber because the parliamentarians wouldn't have had the nerve to put through such a shitty policy. And I think exactly the same thing would be true of Brexit here, because the difference between the opinion of the people on Brexit, which we know is 52-48 in favour, or at least was in June 2016, is about 60-40 the other way when you give people enough time to learn about the issues and kind of decompress from the Daily Mail and The Sun's endless propaganda about, uh, you know, the shape of bananas and pig fat in ice cream and various other things. Uh, But I just... I'm a Democrat, but I'm not a Democrat on McDonald's. I want a Democrat on... I want to be a Democrat on on proper nutrition.
1: And uh, one of the things you've talked about as well is the consequence of not having this kind of thing and having this McDonaldized politics, where it's sound by its inauthentic politicians, is that in in some ways someone like Donald Trump, who in many ways many people would say is deceptive, Hmm. but you've you've talked in the past about how there is
2: an authenticity. His kind of deception is quite different. He's not. I mean. Everyone knows that he doesn't tell the truth. Everyone knows that he's like a little kid in a playground who makes stuff up all the time. But he doesn't optimise what he's saying. He doesn't get a bank of comms people and PR people to say, this is good for all Americans, or, or one of those kinds of things. Uh, so that's... Uh, so people relate to that, because, remember, in this optimised sort of politics, where keeping people away from their reason, and and instead encourage or con- all the all the all the signals they get are emotional signals, and it seems to me, and this is just some amateur punditry from me, but it seems to me that people relate to Donald Trump speaking candidly as he does, as he does. Um, he, he tells people when he stuffed things up, he... I mean, not all the time, not when he's saying he didn't stuff them up. He um, He could say anything, but he's... Uh, and I don't defend the guy. I think he's a, he's a nightmare, a complete nightmare. But, but I'm, I'm addressing myself to why he is as successful as he is. And I think people hear those talking points, hear those focus-grouped slogans And just they've had enough. It's like running your fingers down a blackboard. People are, uh, now I may just be projecting my own frustrations onto onto the great mass of the people, but I just think people absolutely hate all that. They get it in advertising, they get it all the time, and they know what they're getting, and they know that it's junk. The thing they haven't owned up to is that they vote for that junk. They wouldn't get it if it didn't work.
0: Also, as well, doesn't it? Don't, isn't the reason people voted for Trump, people voted for Boris Johnson to be mayor, is that they seem like a version of their authentic self? Mm. So people go, "Oh, mm. I know who this person is. Yes. I can then make a decision." It's why Jacob Rees-Mogg is actually quite popular.
2: Mm. It's well, I quite like watching his. I quite like like watching him because I I sort of like the way he speaks. Um, people tell me he's pretty batty and I think his views on Brexit are probably batty but I don't really know enough about it but he's he's um, he knows what he thinks he's he's pretty straightforward about what he thinks Uh, certainly the things I've seen him talk about. Um, He's an old this is almost extinct. It is extinct in Australia, but he's a Burkean conservative. He's a he. he, he that just oozes out of every pore in his every pore in his uh, being. So, uh, yeah, people like that, and my, you know, there are there's lots to like about it.
0: And that's the thing is that people look at him and go, "I know who Jacob Rees Mogg is." Yeah. Therefore, I can make an informed de- decision. Whereas before in politics, you looked at a lot of these people and you'd go. I don't know who you are, mm. but for mm. better or worse, I think I know who Donald Trump is.
2: Mm. Well, yeah, but that's for worse. That's yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's I mean, it. that's ultimately we're we're tr- we're making these very difficult decisions. Um, but um, yeah, that that's that's the power of this authenticity, and um, of course, you know, uh, these people are quite skilled at it. You know, that line that you know if you can fake sincerity you've got to you know you can George Carlin's fake, great line yeah, yeah, yeah that's right um
1: the main thing in in the in the show business is authenticity once you can fake that yeah, you, you can, can f- do anything yeah, that's,
2: that's right it. that's right <laughs> so 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 they're all pros they're all professionals and i kind of like the the really good pro- the, the people who know that and then use all of that uh knowledge to project something of of some value um but it's it's an awful, again we are getting ourselves into a situation where, where we are expecting such heroism of our politicians. Well, how's that going then? <laughs> and you, you've actually
1: given the example in the past of an Australian politician who went from being perceived as quite yeah. authentic, o- authentic yeah. to the... Authentistic. Authentistic, <laughs> I, I made up a word there. It's a good Do- word. It's a Trumpism. Trumpism, exactly. I'm learning Donald. <laughs> it's a I'm learning Donald. We want to be on TNN. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you've given that example. Uh-
2: yeah. So Julia Gillard, I think, and I know Julia a bit, and I she's she was the last nice guy we had as prime minister since John Gorton, who you will never have heard of, but he was back in the back in the early seventies. Uh, but Julia went from being a feisty, forensically intelligent deputy leader with fiery red hair to being a talking point zombie. Sorry about that, Julia. <laughs> um, and I had this little fantasy, and the fantasy was that I'd traipse around after her as a, her, as a staffer for her, because I've worked as a staffer for other politicians, and she'd come out of an interview, and I'd, she'd say, how did I go, as they tend to, and I'd say, shit out Julia, here's a, <laughs> here's a DVD. When you get home, you and Tim watch this, um, and you'll see a real master at work. And when she got home, she'd put it in, and who would it be but herself? And it wasn't even gonna be her former self, it was a particular format that she continued to be very good at, Mm. which was Q&A, which is uh, people from the audience asking questions. Mm. And she was tremendously, all those things, a little less feisty, but, but, but compelling, uh, calm, intelligent, warm, uh, fun, knocked it out of the park. So here we had a kind of superstar-in-waiting who possibly partly because of the woman thing, possibly partly because she was a woman and was feeling under some kind of pressure to act in a certain kind of way. I don't know, that's pure speculation from my point of view. Um, She couldn't quite do it. I think she got quite a lot better by the end, and by the end, it was uh, too late. But um, that's, my bit of, uh, that's my bit of amateur uh, explanation for how Julia had a great honeymoon, made some sort of obvious political mistakes as well, um, and one of which was to be too honest when people said, you've introduced a carbon tax and you promised not to, and the correct political answer was, well, it's not a carbon tra- tax, it's per carbon permits, and that's the sort of answer that John Howard would have given. And he wouldn't have got out of it. There still would have been some pressure on him, but it was sufficient... But it turns out, I think, in hindsight, that the right answer was to, to dissemble a bit, and, and what Julia Gillard did was said, yeah, OK, you can call it a carbon tax... Uh, I, I i made the I made the promise in good faith i ha- I had to run a government in coalition with the greens, and this is what we 've come up with and it 's a good policy um, uh, anyway so she made some actual political mistakes which some people could argue were the reason for her not going so well. I think it was this inability to remain authentic through all the spinmeisters and all the pressure and and, and and pressure, perhaps, that she put on herself. She has a fantastic memory as well, and on one occasion she gave a speech, almost word-for-word word perfect with the speech sitting in front of her without looking at her notes. And I think she did a bit of that, well, she, in my opinion, she did a great deal too much of it with talking points that she had in her mind, and she would return to them to ad nauseam. And and, and and on one occasion, uh, when she was going for election, there was a slogan which was "moving forward," which was used 61 times in two speeches, and then it was a joke. Well, <laughs> I could have told her that. Mm. Yeah. Um, so so she she was an authentic politician, and she presented herself as an as a talking point zombie, as I've as I've un, unkindly said.
1: <laughs> well, I'm sure she's watching. Uh, <laughs>
2: We're fellows at King's College, so um, I'm going to see you next week with any luck. All right. You, you, won't be, you won't have shown this by then, will you? Uh, <laughs> no, probably not. No. probably
1: not. So you, you'll have an opportunity for a good... Yeah. Uh, well, we'll send it to her anyway.
2: Yeah, oh, thanks very much. <laughs> uh,
1: but look, the last question we always like to ask, because it's been fascinating to have you on the show, uh, is uh, what is the one thing that no one's talking about that we ought to be talking about?
2: The details. or well, not so much the details, but not those two things in the polls. Uh, but not, not the opinion polls, the left and the right polls. That's what we should be talking about. If we're... Whatever we're talking about, find something of interest, find something you might be able to make better and forget about all the argy-bargy flying backwards and forwards and see if you can think of ways to make it better and then grow a group of people around the idea who will agree with you.
1: Fantastic. It's been great to have you on. Thank you so Thanks, much for coming Thanks, Constantine. On. Um, I love the way you just announced <laughs> <Francis again. laughs> Thanks
2: again well I thought Francis might say something I'd say thanks Francis
1: Yeah, uh, it's been great to have you on if you've enjoyed this week's fantastic episode as always subscribe to the channel
0: uh, click that bell button and I'll let Francis do the social media yes uh, follow us on TriggerPod we are on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook also as well um, we're starting to get a little bit long reviews on uh, the iTunes so leave us a nice review tell us what you think um, yeah please do And that'll be it. And uh, thank you again for watching or listening. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.